morning. If you have your Bibles, I would ask that you open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 through 21. We'll be continuing where Jorge left us in 1 Corinthians last week. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 21. And we'll begin this morning by reading the text. It says as follows, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited, exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will, found, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? If you right now opened your phone or some, for some strange reason you had a computer in the service and you were taking notes and you went to Lighthouse Bible Church or LighthouseBibleSeeMe.com, our church website, and you went to the messages tab, you would be able to listen to all of the sermons that Pastor Ben has preached on 1 Corinthians. Some of you know this, you listen each week maybe to remind yourself of the previous week's sermon. And if there was by some means... It possible for you to listen to all of the sermons in the next, you know, maybe 30 seconds and comprehend the content of those sermons, you would realize a single theme that underlies each sermon. Each sermon is concerned with the concept of church unity, of the church of God, the church in Corinth to whom Paul was writing, dwelling together with one another 
in unity. This theme shows up at the beginning of the epistle. Look with me in your Bibles briefly at 1 Corinthians 1.10. Paul introduces his major theme for writing this epistle. And one of those themes is church unity. It shows up here at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That same word is used again in chapter 4, verse 16, when he says, I urge you. It's his prevailing concern at the outset of this letter. In your mind, where does church unity fall on the issues that plague or befall a church? Is church unity a significant thing? Is it a more minor thing among the host of sins that a church could struggle with? Where would you rank church unity on the struggles that a church faces? Well, the text we're looking at this morning, chapter 4, verse 6 through 21, is the capstone text in this issue of church unity. It comes at the end of Paul's section on unity. And we know that unity is a significant concern for Paul for several reasons. First, the first issue out of all the issues that Paul deals with in writing to the Corinthian church is this issue of church unity. You think about the other things he talks about in 1 Corinthians. One of them is immorality that's in chapter 5 that will be brought up in future sermons. You think that would be a significant thing for Paul to address in a letter to a church. They should deal with that and they will. But the thing that Paul begins with is church unity. And it's not just the first issue that Paul deals with, it's also the longest issue. If you were to compare the length of each issue that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, church unity is the longest one. So I think that indicates the significance that Paul has for the church in Corinth being unified. And there's one other consideration. That is that some have suggested that church unity isn't just one of many issues that plague the Corinthian church. It was the underlying issue that plagued the church. Some have suggested it's the primary theme of the letter. If you look with me, just glance in your Bibles at chapter 6, verse 8. He's talking about, in this section, lawsuits against other believers. And just look at the wording of these verses. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 10, verse 32 Paul gives attention to Christian liberty and he's talking and he says this, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Or chapter 11, verse 16, he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, well, what is contention? It's an issue of unity. It's an issue of brotherly relationship in the body of Christ. You look at chapter 11, verse 17 through 34. Again, when they come to the Lord's Supper, there's issues of church unity at stake. Chapter 12 through 14, talking about spiritual gifts. How are they exercising their giftedness in the body? Well, he uses the analogy of a body because it's a perfect analogy for church unity. If you read 1 Corinthians, you come to this conclusion. And the implication of everything is this. That Paul is concerned with the church of God dwelling in unity. And there is a threat for disunity 
every time it gathers. You see, the threat for disunity is a personal threat. It follows you when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the gym. All that is necessary is one thought about another brother or sister in this room, and disunity can begin. Disunity is a significant theme for the Apostle Paul. So that's why in this section, chapter 4, verse 6 through 21, Paul is going to provide the solution. At the end of his discussion on church unity, he is going to give us the solution so that the Corinthian church, so that Lighthouse Bible Church may be unified. And so we'll look at this solution in three stages. Unity comes by example. Unity comes by imitation and unity comes by the gospel. If you're looking at the title slide, all of those words are in the title. So just remember the title and you can remember the sermon. Church unity by imitating gospel examples. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 4. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn, and notice these two very small words, by us. Paul is appealing to his own example as a source of unity for the church. In other words, the church can be unified if they see the example of Paul, the other apostles, and Apollos. And he draws attention to his own example in two ways. First, in applying the truth to himself. Look again at verse 6. He says, I have applied all these Things. In other words, everything that Paul is saying about church unity at this point, in order for the Corinthian church to dwell in unity, Paul begins by applying it with himself. There's a subtle implication going on here that church unity begins with the church leadership. You notice there that he draws attention to himself and Apollos. Paul and Apollos, those references act as a launching pad to understand the entirety of Paul's section on church unity. Paul and Apollos, those names as a pair, shows up several times. Look with me back at chapter 1, verse 12. He's talking about church unity. And there's these issues going on, factions in the church regarding their leadership. Look at 1.12. He says this. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. It seems that the Corinthian church was dividing over their leadership, over people who were influential in their growth, in ministering to them. And what's interesting to note is that neither Paul nor Apollos is among the Corinthian church when this letter is written. We know from chapter 16 that Apollos was in a different location at the time of writing. So the, the church, the Corinthian church, is dividing over people who aren't even their immediate leadership. You think about the extension of how petty that may seem. They're dividing over people who are not currently present with them. Indeed, many issues of church unity do begin with things that seem somewhat distant seem somewhat inconsequential. And that may be what it seems to be here. We'll look at other references to Paul and Apollos. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Again, you see that Paul and Apollos was a contentious point for this church. Chapter 3, verse 4. For when one says, he's quoting them, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, 
Are you not being merely human? Or chapter 3, verse 21. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. The Corinthian church was factions, had factions among the church regarding their leadership. And so Paul, in order to counter their disunity, begins with himself. He begins with his own example. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. It raises the question, well, were, were Paul and Apollos, were they guilty of causing disunity in the church? Was the problem that the Corinthian church saw Paul and Apollos and realized, wow, the, those, those leaders, those important figures in the early Christianity and the history of the church, they were divided so, so we, we, we could never be in agreement. Look at our leadership. They're, div- they're divided. How can we be unified? Well, no, Paul and Apollos were not disunified. They were in agreement. They were existing in unity with one another. And what's the point? Why would Paul draw attention to that? Well, I think it's because of this reason. If the leadership is unified in the church, there is no legitimate excuse for disunity. If the leadership, the people whom God has appointed to shepherd his flock, exist with one another in harmony, in unity, in agreement on philosophy, and interpretation of the scriptures, then is there any excuse for us to be disunified with one another? There is no excuse. But look at the wording of verse 6. You'll notice that he appeals to his own example that you may learn by us, but he doesn't use the term church unity. He elaborates it in a slightly different way. I think what Paul's doing is he's getting at the root of the problem. Look with me again at verse 6. He says that you may learn by us, and then he says this, not to go beyond what is written. Now, that's sort of an enigmatic saying, not go beyond what is written. What is written? What is this thing that's being referred to that's been inscribed on some sort of documentation that can be read? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that this term, what is written, occurs four other times. And so I'd like to show you those this morning. And they're all previously, they all occur previously to this occurrence. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 19. What is Paul referring to when he says that some are disunified, they go beyond what is written? Well, what is he referring to? One nineteen says this, the opening few words. For it is written. Same construction in the language. Look at chapter 1, verse 31. He says, so that as it is written. Well, what follows those statements? He's quoting the Old Testament. And you'll see this again in chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 19. So what's the point? Paul's saying that the church is disunified, going beyond what is written. Well, what is written? The Old Testament, the scripture, what God has revealed for man, the point being this, that disunity occurs when people exalt themselves over the scriptures, over God's word. We have a word for that. What do we call that? We call that pride. And that's exactly where Paul goes in the next phrase. Look at chapter 4, verse 6 with me. He says this, that none of you may be puffed up 
in favor of one against another. In 1 Corinthians and in throughout the New Testament, this idea of boasting and being proud occurs frequently. But here in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses a very unique word, and it's translated in your Bible as puffed up. It's this idea of being inflated. Maybe you've been to the shop of a blacksmith or some other place where they use something called a bellows. That was the context that this word was often applied to, to puff something up. If you think about a bellows, you inflate the bellows, and as you expand the bellows, air comes in. That's this idea of being puffed up, that a person would inflate themselves above others. Paul's writing, encouraging the church, you should not be puffed up. Your pride is leading to your disunity, and your pride is, is so foolish because you're looking at people who, who aren't even currently in your assembly, and you're saying, I am puffed up because of who I have allegiance to? How silly. But yet many issues of church unity do begin with something rather silly. Think about all the contentions that people in this body may have with one another. Something that someone said to someone multiple years ago that's been lingering in their heart, harboring bitterness. Maybe the way a ministry's run in the church or the way someone conducts themselves in the presence of others. Or maybe you're just disunified because you don't like someone's idiosyncrasies, things you can't control. You don't like their mannerisms or the things they say, or you don't like the fact that they say um a lot in conversation. Church disunity does often begin with rather petty things. Paul says, look at my example, and by my example, do not go beyond the scriptures. Do not go beyond what is written. Do not be puffed up in favor of one, Apollos, against another, Paul. He doesn't just draw attention to his example, though, by, by saying by us. He does this by looking what his example actually looks like. Look with me at, chapter, at verse 7. You'll notice Paul begins to ask questions directed toward the Corinthians. And these are rhetorical questions. He knows what they're going to say. Look with me at verse 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? These aren't questions Paul doesn't know the answer to. He's asking the questions, revealing something about the Corinthian church, that they are proud. You take one of those questions, for example, what do you have that you did not receive? Well, what could they say? You know, I have my livelihood, my job. I didn't receive that. I worked for that. I obtained that. I have my source of income, my family, all these things in my life. I acquired them. Could they say that? Well, no. I think deep down, everyone in here knows this fact that everything we have, every single aspect of our life is from God. And so how can you be proud about your life if everything you have is a gift? And yet some of us, we boast as if God had not given to it, it to us. Paul's asking these questions and he's saying, Corinthian church, you are proud. And he continues and gets even stronger in his language in verse 8. He says this, already you have all you want. Is he being serious there? Does the Corinthian church actually have everything they needed spiritually? No. 
He said, without us, you have become kings. Or think about this statement. Oh, I wish, Corinthian church, you were reigning so I could reign with you. He's making statements in a non-serious way to drive a point. Corinthian church, you are puffed up. You are proud. Look at the contrast between what he is bringing to light about the Corinthian church and what he says about his own life. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Contrast? Does Paul's life look like the Corinthian church? Well, no, it doesn't. And that becomes even clearer in the next several verses. Look with me at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Is there any cause for boasting in that? Is that a reason to be proud? Do many people claim in their pride that they are the scum of this world, the refuse of everything? Well, no. Paul is showing by his own example that unity occurs through humility. Through God's people being humble before the Lord. I think there are several applications for this for us. One of them we've already mentioned. That is, there is no unity for a church if the leadership cannot be unified. If you are in a position of leadership in this church, are you dwelling in unity with the other members of this body? with the other members of the leadership of this church? If you are an elder of this church, are you in unity with the other elders? Or if you are a member, a regular attender of this church, are you dwelling in disunity? When, when our leadership is unified at Lighthouse Bible Church? Unity doesn't just occur though by example. It's corresponding to say that unity exists by imitation. What do you do with an example? Well, you imitate it. And this is the second point, that unity comes by imitation. If you read all of 1 Corinthians, you'll notice something very unique. And that is, in this first section about church unity, there is a significant lack in comparison with the rest of the book. From chapter 1, 10, chapter 1, verse 10, to 4, verse 21, there's a significant lack in number of direct commands that are given to the Corinthian church. Whereas in the rest of the book, there are a number of imperatives that are given. And the point, I think, is this. There are only two direct imperatives. One of them is this command, chapter 4, verse 16, to be an imitator of Paul. Why wouldn't there be a lot of commands in regard to unity? You think there would be exhortation, you know, cease from gossip, cease from slander, cease from being proud. You think you would have a direct command about that, but that doesn't occur. What's the connection? The connection is this, that unity begins in the mind. Unity begins in a person's thinking. That's exactly where Paul goes in chapter 1, verse 10. 
that you would be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Unity begins with your thinking. Well, how do you change someone's thinking? Or how do you get them to stop thinking the wrong thought? Is it by saying, stop thinking about that? If I say, cease from, you know, the classic saying, cease from thinking about elephants. Well, telling someone not to think about something only encourages them to think about it. It's like the old saying, how do you know if a counterfeit is counterfeit? Well, it's not by knowing all the various versions of counterfeit money that exist. Well, that may be one way. A much more efficient way would be to know the real one in a very thorough way. And I think that's why Paul, at this outset of unity, throughout you know, the first three, four chapters, he's discussing matters of thinking. He's not coming out and saying, here's a command, cease from doing this, be unified. He's saying, here is the truth. Think on this. Truth in, in regard to what is strength, what is spirituality, what is honor, what is true wisdom? These are all themes that show up throughout the first several chapters of 1 Corinthians. And what does the Bible say in response to that? He corrects them in their thinking. And on the basis of corrected thinking, then he urges this command, the second command of direct address in the letter. And that's this, chapter 4, verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Think about the irony of this. Paul says, imitate me. The solution to unity, imitate me. That seems sort of counterintuitive, doesn't it? And what's also ironic is the fact that the very solution for their disunity is the person they were criticizing. He's saying, Corinthian church, you're disunified about me. Imitate me. That doesn't seem natural to us, does it? Well, I think it is right, and we'll see that if you examine the basis on which he appeals for this imitation. He says, I urge you then, referring back to what he's just said, beginning in verse 14. So look with me at verse 14 of chapter 4. He says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's appealing to a relationship, father, son children. He says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then. So in other words, Paul appeals to the fatherly relationship he has with this church as the source, the reason, the motivation for why they would imitate him. Why does he appeal to that relationship in a unique way? Well, you know this, have you ever heard the phrase, like father, like son? It's only natural for sons, daughters to imitate their parents. He appeals to that relationship as the basis. It's a personal relationship that he has with this church because he was in, thoroughly involved in the planting of this church. He was ministering Acts chapter 18 in Corinth and the byproduct of that was the Corinthian church. He appeals to the Unique relationship, and this relationship is contrasted with something else. Look with me at verse 15. He says, though you have countless guides in Christ, literally 10,000. Though you have 10,000 guides in Christ. Well, 
pause for a moment, what's a guide in Christ? A guide in Paul's context would have been someone who accompanied a young boy or a, a girl to school and then tutored them, protected them. They helped them along the way. It's not a, a bad thing. It's a good thing. It was a, it's a unique term. It's a helpful term. But there's something greater than that. And that's a person's father. There's a more personal, intimate relationship between a father and a son or a father and a daughter than there is between a guide who's just been paid, hired off to accompany this child. Paul is appealing to this for a unique personal relationship so that the church may imitate him. But Paul doesn't just appeal to a relationship. Actually, Paul will pursue imitation. Look with me at verse 17. I, verse 16, he says, I urge you then be imitators of me. Verse 17, that is why, so that you may imitate, that is why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child. Timothy, who's imitating Paul. Timothy, you go to the Corinthian church and you remind them, verse 17, of my ways in Christ. The Corinthian church, you have forgotten how to imitate me. Timothy now actually needs to come and remind you how to be unified by looking at my example. The church would have known Timothy. Timothy was serving with Paul in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. Consider with me this morning how countercultural this admonition is to pursue unity through imitating someone. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, our culture says, be yourself, be unique. Don't submit to someone else's whims or ideals for your life. Be yourself. Cast off shackles. Be free. Pursue liberty. But definitely do not imitate somebody else. Why would you do that? You're not being yourself. You're just being what they want you to be. But yet Paul says that true unity exists around imitation. There is a benefit that comes from imitating. And our culture doesn't realize this, but we benefit from imitation all the time. Maybe on your shoe or your backpack or your purse or somewhere in your car or somewhere you have Velcro. Well, where did Velcro come from? It's imitation. It's imitation of something that God has put in creation. It happened when a man saw a burr stuck onto his sock and he put it under a microscope and he realized, well, that's a great way to attach two things together. And now you have Velcro. Maybe you've flown in a plane recently. You realize you flew in a plane because someone observed the wings of a bird and how they operate and realized, hmm, maybe we could design the wing of a plane to be like that and therefore profit from it. You see, we imitate all the time things in nature, but we, we imitate each other. People imitate a person's accent or their mannerisms. We do this frequently. But do we do it to someone's benefit? Paul says we should. We should imitate him. Who are you imitating? Or conversely, if someone is imitating you, what do you think their life is going to look like? Is your life worthy of imitation? Well, that raises another question. What are we supposed to imitate about somebody? We've already talked about Paul's example of humility. I mean, are we, we're all supposed to go down to Walmart and buy a pair of you know, Skechers sandals and get a robe and a leather belt and wrap it around our waist and look like Paul? Is that what Paul's encouraging us? No. I think you know this. 
And, and wouldn't we think, well, Paul, you're putting yourself on a pedestal. What if you mess up? How can we imitate you? What is Paul saying when he says, imitate me? How will that solve the problem of church unity? Well, it brings us to this third point. That unity occurs by example. Unity occurs by imitation. But unity occurs by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity comes through Christ. If you've been reading 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that Paul's method of solving or countering each Corinthian viewpoint is to go back to the gospel. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to fly through this issue of unity, 110 through 421, and we're going to see that Paul solves problems by appealing to the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 13. He's just said, church, you're divided. What does he say? Chapter 1, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? What is he appealing to there? Jesus Christ being crucified for the sins of, of, of God's people. Or verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? To preach the gospel. Or chapter 1, verse 18. What is he appealing to there? To solve the Corinthian viewpoint of worldly wisdom, what does he go to? The word of the cross. He goes to the gospel. Or chapter 1, verse 26. You are proud in your thinking. You're lifted up. Where does Paul go? Chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling. Consider your calling. That you are a sinner outside of Christ, deserving of God's wrath, never allowed into God's presence because of God's holiness. And yet God in love called you. He called you to salvation. Should that not humble you? Should that not encourage you toward church unity? Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. He's going to the gospel. And he continues. Chapter 2 verse 6 through 10. He speaks about the wisdom and the cross. Chapter 2 verse 14 through 16. The natural person cannot understand the things of the spirit of God. Implication. You cannot receive God unless God's spirit does a work in your life. He's going to the gospel. Chapter 3 verse 1 through 9. God grows a person through the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 10 through 17, the foundation of the church is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 18 through 23, you are Jesus Christ's. And here in chapter 4, he appeals again to the gospel. Church, be unified around the gospel. Be unified by the gospel. And he shows this by his example. Look with me at verse 9 again. We looked at this earlier. But ask yourself this question. If I read verse 9 through 13, who does this remind me of? Who does verse 9 through 13 remind me of? You can scan your eyes there. Look at the wording. It says, God has exhibited us as apostles. Last of all, like men sentenced to death. Who does that remind me of? Verse 10, we are fools. Or verse 10, it says we are weak. 
We are in disrepute. Who went on this earth, verse 11, hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless? Who was reviled, but in return blessed? First Peter says that is Jesus Christ. Who endured in the midst of persecution? Jesus Christ. Who was slandered and yet entreated for his opponents to come to Christ, to come to himself? Who was that? It was Jesus Christ. Who did the world count to be scum and refuse? Jesus Christ. The point is this. Paul's life doesn't look like Paul. Paul's life begins to look like Jesus Christ. The solution to unity in the church is when God's people, their life looks like Jesus Christ. Their life is like him. There's no separation between their life and Jesus' life. And that's why later in 1 Corinthians, when Paul says to imitate himself, what does he say? It's a tack on phrase. Imitate me, chapter 11, verse 1, as I imitate Christ. The solution to unity, the solution to the problem of disunity in our church is to look like Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. And that's not just made clear by how Paul solves the problems in 1 Corinthians. It's not just made clear by looking at his example. That's also made crystal clear by looking at his upcoming visit to the church. So look with me at 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 18. He says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Same word, but being puffed up. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, the puffed up individuals. I will find out their power. Verse 20, The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. There's this contrast that Paul gives and elaborates on, and that is the the talk or the power of the Corinthian church. And these aren't just, you know, abstract terms that Paul has pulled out of nowhere. These are terms that he has already elaborated on in 1 Corinthians. So look with me back now at chapter 2, and you'll see these same ideas of power versus talk, speech versus authentic Power from the gospel. Come in chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. There you have it talk, speech, wisdom, things the Corinthian church was prone to emphasize and glorify and use as a reason for pride. I didn't come like that. I didn't, I didn't come like that, and I'm not going to come to you like that. He says, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, when I came to you the first time, I came with the gospel. And then he says again, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. In other words, the gospel was the power that he brought with him so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
So when Paul says in chapter 4, verse 18 through 20, I'm coming out, I'm not coming out to find out their talk. I'm coming out to find out their power. He's saying, I'm coming out, their worldly wisdom is irrelevant to me. What is relevant is, do they believe the gospel? Is there genuine power in their midst through the gospel? Paul reminds them of the gospel as a solution to unity. Church, what are we unified around? Are we unified around ideals or principles that exist in this world for the sake of advancing our own agendas? Are we unified about maybe political problems? I think in many ways it could be easier for people in the world to know what the church is against but not know what the church is supporting, what the church is advancing in this world. Now, that's not to throw scorn on all the things that are legitimate concerns for individuals, but what is this church concerned with? When people look at your life, when they hear, oh, that person attends Lighthouse Bible Church, do you think, oh, that's the church that can't stop talking about the gospel? That's those people who, the gospel is the first thing on their lips. They're speaking to me about Christ and his sacrifice for their sins so that they might have be reconciled to God and be treated as one of God's sons or daughters. Is that what people consider our church to be? A gospel church? A church that's unified by imitating examples of the gospel? And this raises one final question to consider. Why would church unity be such a big deal for Paul anyways? Like, what's the point? The church is unified. What is the byproduct of church unity? Well, he solves church unity by going to the gospel. But notice this interesting point that, that church unity is one of the greatest testaments, one of the greatest witnesses to the gospel. You ask an unbeliever, what's the problem with Christians today? They're going to say, disunity. They're going to say, they look at our religion from afar and they say, they have so many Bible translations. There are so many denominations. So many people doing all these different things in worship services so many people having problems with one another. You have church splits happening in one city and another. People leaving from one church and church hopping. How could that ever be true? You claim to have objective truth and you are disunified. You see, church unity is one of the greatest witnesses. One of the things that God has put in this world to testify to the truth of the gospel. That his children dwell in harmony. Do you realize that when you have a problem with another person in this room, with another person who claims the name of Christ, you may think it's a minor deal, but do you realize that's a direct affront to the advancement of the gospel in this world? You are prohibiting the gospel, not prohibiting, you are, you are, you are instilling reason in an unbeliever to reject the gospel because your life is an affront. The gospel will go forward by God's power. But are you contributing to it or not by your disunity with other believers? Church unity is the powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. Paul has clearly explained the solution to church unity. It comes through 
looking at his example of humility. It comes through imitating his life, particularly imitating the gospel as he lives it out. I think oftentimes the things we look for solutions to our problems is outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really everything has been given to us in Christ in the fact that he came to this earth as the son of God. He lived a perfect life that we never could. He died on the cross and on the cross God counted him to be sinful all of our sins so that we might be counted righteous in Jesus Christ. By repenting and believing in Christ, you may be unified with the church of God. That is where church unity lies. Church unity lies in the gospel. In closing, I was speaking with um, Pastor Ben on the phone yesterday. And we were just reminiscing about this series on 1 Corinthians. And I just remarked to him how Ironic it was, not ironic, actually providential, that one of the songs that Jorge introduced to our church is Oh How Good It Is, a song that is concerned with church unity, right at the time that this series was beginning to ramp up. And so uh, that's the song we'll close our sermon with this morning. But as you sing that song, I would like you to consider in your heart, can you testify to the truth of those words? Are you dwelling in unity with the brothers and sisters in Christ in this room? And if not, maybe you need to reapply the gospel to your life. And if you are, praise God that by the gospel, you can dwell in unity with his body. Let's close in a word of prayer.